It's Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. We're getting into this week's top headlines. A group of New Hampshire lawmakers deny the Attorney General's proposed settlement process for victims of abuse who were held at the former Youth Development Center as children. The state's making plans to deal with monkeypox with its limited supply of vaccines, and a new residency program is bringing dentists to rural New Hampshire. NHPR's Ellie Pham and New Hampshire Bulletin's Anne-Marie Timmons join us now to talk about the latest in New Hampshire news. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Anne-Marie, I want to start with you. Lawmakers have allotted $100 million to compensate victims of child abuse who, are, who resided at the former Youth Detention Center, now known as the Sununu Youth Services Center. The Attorney General is tasked with creating the settlement process. What do the AG's plan entail? It's, it's quite a lot. It runs almost 100 pages. It lays out the details victims must provide about their abuse, how the state will investigate those claims, and how it will decide how much it will pay victims. And then beyond that, um, it lays out what victims can do. They can accept the state's offer. They can reject it and ask a third-party administrator to decide the amount or withdraw and pursue a lawsuit. And so there's just many, 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 many steps within there and then many steps within those steps. It's really, really complicated. What were lawmakers' concerns about the plan? Why why did they reject it? And they haven't rejected it yet, but nor have they accepted it. They, I see. They've tabled it because of all of these questions. Um, a main one is the complexity. Senator D'Alessandro said, if you think someone can get through this without a lawyer, quote, you're out of your mind. Um, and I think a lot of people share that concern. There's other concerns in there. There's, um, you know, one amount of money will be paid for one type of rate, but not for another and Senator Rosenwald said, you know, this is all child rape, and, and that's important to remember. There's also discrepancies between what's written down and what Attorney John Formella said was possible. For example, the plan says this is for past residents, people who resided at YDC. But he said to lawmakers, no, no, it can also be for people who are there as well. So there's a wide range of concerns that they need sorted out, and he can come back and ask for acceptance of this plan. And we, we have to do we have to delineate here between residing and, and being detained, being held, right? That too, and is also a past and present. So it's it's all of those things, and that that's a good that's a good point. It's it's that detailed and also that confusing. And again, lawyers who are representing many of the people who, who endured abuse at the center were critical of the state creating a settlement fund in the first place. Why, why is that? There are a, a pair of lawyers who represent 400-plus of these victims. They think the caps are too low. It's $150,000 for physical abuse and then $1.5 million for sexual abuse with or without physical abuse. So they feel those are too low. They also think the state's investigation plan um, to proceed with these claims to look into what's um, val- valid and what isn't, they feel that is too invasive. So those are two lawyers, but they do represent 400-plus of the victims. What are you hearing from the victims of uh, themselves? Well, interesting, we've not heard much from victims, but we I have spoken with lawyers who are representing other victims that don't feel the same way. They feel this is a reasonable process and a good alternative for victims who just don't have the interest or the time to fight the state and court for years. For example, a lot of these folks are still in incarcerated today, and they have child support to pay, or they need legal bills paid, and they need money now, and they don't have time for a long process. So I have heard from those lawyers that this is what our victims need right now. 
Now, the state is scheduled to start accepting claims on January 1st. The attorney general's office said they are confident they will have a plan by the deadline. What would that mean for victims, and and how can they file claims? If the lawmakers do approve this plan in the next several weeks, and I think there is optimism they will, the victims would have two years beginning January 1st to file claims. Claim forms will be available for download on the Department of Justice website, and anyone interested can look at everything that's been proposed so far. Um, But victims will also be able to request a paper copy um, because many of these folks are still incarcerated and they'll need that option. And they will be able to um, send those in via email, fax, mail, hand delivery. So I do think the state is trying to make this widely available. One question is how well would they advertise this and make sure people know that this is an option and where to get the forms they need. This is the Friday New Hampshire News Recap. I'm Rick Ganley. We're looking at the week's top headlines. Let's turn to what's happening on your beat, Alley, health and equity. The state is developing its response to the monkeypox virus. Alley, can, can you remind us how monkeypox spreads between people? Yeah, so we do know that it spreads through close physical contact and by touching surfaces that have been used by someone with the virus. So that could be towels or sheets. But, you know, also I think something that may sound familiar uh, to, to listeners with the COVID pandemic is that, you know, scientists are still trying to understand exactly how this spreads. So, for example, uh, one question they're, they're looking at now is, you know, does it spread when someone has no symptoms? And Marie, I know monkeypox is not widespread yet, yet in New Hampshire, but it is present. Um, what's the state of the virus in the state and in, in the region as a whole? Um, as of last night, when I took a look, that we had 15 confirmed cases in New Hampshire. So low, um, not as low as Maine. They had three, and Vermont was at one. And if you look at the CDC map, New York is probably the closest hotspot to us. And then there's also California, Texas, and Florida. But here in New England, it's still pretty low. Ali, the state has a limited supply of vaccines. Who's eligible for a vaccine now, and and how could they access it if they need it? Right. So up until very recently, um, the eligibility was extremely limited. We had very, very few in you know in the low hundreds of of vaccines, and it was only a few healthcare workers and people who had direct exposure to someone with a confirmed case of of the virus. But just this week, the um, state health officials expanded the vaccine to some men who have sex with men. And they say that they're focusing on this population, um, not because, I mean, we know the virus can infect anyone, um, but the vast majority of, of cases confirmed in the U.S. so far have have been in this this population. Now, Anne-Marie, how can people contact public public health officials if they've got questions about monkeypox? There's a couple of options. Um, I'd really recommend looking at Department of Health and Human Services website. They have a lot of resources there. But people can send questions to the department at monkeypox at dhhs.nh.gov. And secondly, Dartmouth Health now has a hotline available. We'll take general questions. Um, that's 603-650-1818. And again, they, there's really strong recommendation to start with your doctor if you think you have symptoms. Um, but if there's general questions, these are two places you can go. And we yeah. should reiterate, too, again, it's not widespread at the moment here mm-hmm. in the region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the state will also be um, posting the clinic locations on their website on Monday of where the vaccine will be um, accessible. 
This is Morning Edition from NHPR, recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletin's Emery Timmons and NHPR's Ali Pham. By the way, if you've got questions, you can inform our reporting. You can email us at nhpr.org. This last legislative session, lawmakers approved basic dental benefits for some adults on Medicaid, but folks could have a problem accessing those benefits because there is a shortage of dentists in New Hampshire who take Medicaid. Anne-Marie, can you tell us more about the shortage? Sure. Uh, you know, de- as you said, New Hampshire just has a shortest of dentists, period. There's just not enough. There's only 16% of those who take Medicaid. And so you take that number, and then you think about the 85,000 adults on Medicaid who now are um, eligible for dental care covered by Medicaid. And, you know, that is terrible math. So mm-hmm. they really need to bring that up. I think their hope is, you know, the the decision not to take Medicaid comes with that it's complicated claims. It's also a population that needs a lot of help getting to appointments. And so part of this contract the state is putting out is we'll do all of that for you. Someone will do all the claims forms. Someone will get people to the appointments. They'll provide language services if needed. So they're trying to shore that up with a, a real change in the way they're, they're asking people to take Medicaid. So I think that's their biggest hope on that front is to make it easier. Yeah, I think also, too, I mean, a lot of some of the dentists that I've talked to who haven't taken Medicaid say that because historically New Hampshire has really not had a Medicaid dental benefit for adults, that if they didn't offer emergency procedures, which was the only thing for adults that was covered, it kind of did not make sense for them to take Medicaid because they couldn't have really seen those patients. So now that there is an expanded benefit, in some ways, it, you know, for some dentists, they may now choose to to take it. So I think on a slightly optimistic note, perhaps some will just sort of voluntarily um, start taking it. I have talked to a few dentists who that is the case for, but we'll see how how widespread that ends up being. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if there's a shortage of dentists generally, um, but you want to get those numbers up any way you can. Uh, Ali, you published a story this week about a new residency program that will bring more dentists to rural New Hampshire specifically. Could this program possibly help with that shortage? Yeah, it definitely could. The dentists who are coming in, um, there's going to be three a year in this residency program, are going to be working at some of our rural health centers here in New Hampshire um, that see a lot of low-income patients, a lot of folks with significant dental issues who who are on Medicaid. And I mean, three dentists, it sounds like a really tiny number, but the the reality is we have programs here that have closed because their single dentist has left. So, you know, three dentists can can make a difference. But, um, you know, I think in the long term, the question is, will some of these dentists actually stay and practice Mm -hmm. in the state when their residency program um, wraps up. And I, I think the other thing here, too, is the, that solving the, the workforce shortage when it comes to the dental industry is more complicated than, than just dentists. A lot of people who work in the field say there are also shortages of dental assistants and hygienists. So we also need the people who actually make it possible for for dentists to do their work. Absolutely. It's a holistic look uh, when you look at the, the whole the whole picture here. And it's been going on for years, the shortage, too. I want to ask you both before we I let you go, we're getting to the end here, what you are both working on right now. Any upcoming stories that listeners should be on the lookout for? Let's start with you, Emery. I do have one um, that'll appear Monday, I think. It looks at 
just the number of um, labor and delivery services that we've lost in this state. Um, Frisbee now is hoping to close its labor and delivery practice. Concord Birth Center um, will ha- will close its center um, next year. So I have that story done, and then I'm working on vacation. <laughs> Good for you. I hope you hope you can enjoy the, the last few weeks of summer here. How about you, um, Allie? What are you lo- wor- looking at and, and working on? Yeah, so I'm continuing to follow um, – what the state is doing in terms of its monkeypox vaccine rollout, but then also, you know, more sort of prevention like testing and education. So I've been on the phone a lot these past few weeks talking to health centers. Um, and it's been interesting because a lot of them have actually been pretty hesitant to to talk to me on the record because they felt like they need more information before they, they do that. Um, so it does seem like some more concrete plans are taking shape, but, you know, I think still some, some confusion and lack of information out there. Okay. We'll be watching for the reporting on that. And another story we're keeping an eye on from this week, a jury acquitting truck driver Vladimir Zukovsky and the deaths of seven motorcyclists stemming from a crash in Randolph in 2019. The governor and attorney general both receiving backlash from the ACLU of New Hampshire and criminal defense attorneys after they announced their displeasure with the outcome of that case. You can learn more about that story on our website right now at nhpr.org. And I want to thank New Hampshire Bulletin's Emery Timmons and NHPR's Ali Pham for joining us for the recap this morning. Thanks to you both. Thank you. And we will be here a week from now with more top headlines. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR. <laughs> 